You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. Back at you. Happy New Year. We have returned. A little bit of a lengthy hiatus there, I know. But, uh, you know, just, you know, coming right off of the New Year last week, it was only a couple of days in there and I wouldn't have been able to give you a, a fair enough class there. So give them a full week. We're going to get into this. And we just had the watch party for UFO hotspots. And that is what we are talking about this evening only seems only seems right to continue that conversation and for those that are listening to the podcast version of this later every wednesday night eight o'clock p.m eastern time please join us out here live connecteduniverseportal.com 30-day free trial for this subscription to well you get the weekly connecting the universe interactive class sneak peek behind the scenes videos monthly q a's exclusive articles insider travel blogs which are going to be greatly enhanced since we're going back to egypt here in the next few weeks um also american southwest ireland all kinds of great stuff connecteduniverseportal.com and there is tom mcnicholas in the house great to see you tom so we got tom jennifer sarah all right uh, we are on the new platform for running the class. So I really appreciate uh, everybody bearing with me. It was the change over the holidays. And uh, we're, we're going to see how this goes. All right. So let's get to the class question. I did not load up the photo for the class question. Sorry about that. But um, basically, the um, I'm going to have to bring it up here. Class question was, if the government would come completely clean, what's the UFO incident you most want answers about and why? And several of you did respond to that. Uh, Chirsty over there on the Instagram account said, definitely alien pancakes in Eagle River. So I know that sounds kind of silly, but for those that are not familiar with the story, 1961, Joe Simonton in Eagle River, Wisconsin, uh, he came forward with this story that a spaceship had descended upon his farm and the extraterrestrials that came out asked him for some water. Well, he noticed that they were cooking something and he asked for a bite of what they were cooking. To him, it looked like pancakes and tasted awful. So uh, so those are the alien pancakes. And he's uh, ever since he told that story, he says that he regretted telling it because he caught a bunch of grief for it. So, um, so alien pancakes. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, I know, I know the pancakes, right? Uh, Dustin's pancakes. <laughs> I know. Uh, all right. So, uh, Tom, uh, commented in here as well. He said, uh, what is the reason people were abducted and what was done to them? If so, why are we being used as Guinea pigs and why would our government allow this? Excellent question. You know, some people think that the government is behind it, that it's not actually aliens at all, that, you know, it's men in black, or, um, you know, you go back to like the MK Ultra days where they were, uh, you know, testing, you know, LSD on people and things like that. You know, are they the ones that are actually abducting people? Um, you see a lot of, uh, you know, common stories between like the shadow phenomenon and the uh, the extraterrestrial phenomenon. So uh, are these interdimensional beings, time travels, you know, not necessarily from another planet? Yeah, there's a lot of questions behind that. And um, I'm with you. You know, what's what's the real story behind there? Because there's 
a lot of variations. And Jin LeBay says, all of it. <laughs> yes, come clean with all of it. Some of it would probably be very shocking. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, that was a class question. Let's go ahead and get into our topic for this evening, UFO hotspots. So let's actually try to uh, define a, a hotspot here. I'm just going to throw up the map of the Alaska Triangle. We're not really going to get into the Alaska Triangle tonight. We've talked about that at length. Uh, but basically, these are uh, hotspots of UFO and supernatural activity uh, in different areas of the world which are seemingly more energetic in nature and from which we receive a greater than average number of reports and sightings of strange phenomena, whether that's UFOs, supernatural activity, hauntings, cryptid sightings, and so on. They may be considered a triangle area or a vortex area, a location which has seen a plethora of anomalous activity. And basically, I just read straight from an answer that I had put together for the Ancient Aliens television show, which they didn't use. <laughs> there was a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of people that they featured in that particular episode. So I can just imagine because they sit you down for an hour and ask you a whole variety of questions with the number of people that they had on there. They're just grabbing little snippets from everybody. But that was the uh, that was the definition that I gave them for a hotspot. And um, the one thing that they did actually feature on there was if you look at the work of, of J. Allen Hynek and his ufo report and this is what happened during the uh the 60s when you know, he was publishing his reports and he had basically started to notice that many of these ufo reports were there were patterns you know and one of those patterns was that the same locations, or at least relatively close to each other, were reporting these various sightings. And so what happened was when he published these reports, this is the actual full book, the Heineck UFO report, UFO researchers flocked to these different areas and they became the UFO hotspots. This is where people started going to a lot. Now, you would have some very sensationalized stories that would make the uh, mass media like Roswell, uh, Phoenix, Phoenix Lights, which was you know, a bit, that was a bit past Hynek's time. Uh, but when stories like that would, um, you know, come into the open, then people would flock to those areas. But not all of them were highly publicized like that. And so it took something like a compilation of thousands of reports for people to kind of start to take notice, hey, th there's a pattern here. And what's what's interesting about the the Heineck report, well, I should say the, the public, geez, if I could speak properly, the Project Blue Book uh, project. <laughs> project Blue Book findings, I guess you should say. Um, there are still over 700 open cases left from Project Blue Book. Uh, there's a total of 13,000 of them, and they were able to um, deduce many, many, many of these reports. But 700 of them are still open. They could, they could not find a reasonable explanation for them. And that's how Hynek started, was he started uh, really as a skeptic. He was brought in to basically go to these locations and define what exactly was going on. And he wasn't supposed to be coming away and saying, no, these are actually alien or extraterrestrial craft. You know, this is whatever, you know, scientific reason or explanation uh, for the event. But after a while of uh, investigating many of these reports, he started to realize himself that, no, there's actually something to this. Not all of these can just be explained away. And so... Um, so that's historic photo of, of Heineck with uh, some photos in hand. And then this is from the Project Blue Book television show, which was which was really good. It was uh, very disappointing that History Channel canceled it. But uh, they canceled it because they were going away from all their scripted shows. 
but it was it was pretty well received. Um, not historically accurate, <laughs> but um, was quite entertaining and kind of put you on the path to uh, to wanting to research what had happened. So got some comments down here. Uh, Sarah's asking, do you think there is an increase of hotspot activity over time? I think it fluctuates. Um, you know, you're, we're going to get into some different cases here, but like the Hudson Valley uh, sightings, it was like a specific period of time where all of a sudden the activity was heightened and then it subsided. So it seems to kind of fluctuate at times. Um, if that has anything to do with the Earth's magnetism, um, that that ebbs and flows. Now, not all of the, uh, you know, hotspots, UFO hotspots have to do with the Earth's electromagnetism, although there is a correlation with that with many of them. Some seem to be more, I don't know, strategic in nature. If uh, you, know, you talked about the Alaska Triangle just at the very beginning, like Mount Hayes or uh, Mount Denali or some of these other remote locations up there, that are speculated to be UFO bases, it would make sense because it's very remote. Remote people don't go out there, you know. So that would make a lot of sense. Um, Tom says, "I believe that Area 51 test on the crashed spaceship led to the 1980s home computer boom." Um, I think. Okay, this is this is what I'll say about that. Um, There may be some technology that was gleaned from there because there does seem to be a jump around that period of time, late 40s, early 50s, where we, you know, were figuring out computing. Of course, we had uh, Alan Turning, who basically developed, you know, the real first modern computer, and that was to break the Enigma device uh, during World War II. And then we basically took that and shrunk it down to, okay, you know, we're going to use uh, you know, tubes and filaments, then we uh, turned it into the silicone microchip and all that. Now, that could be the transition there. How do we figure out to use the silicone microchip? So if it's somewhere in there, that may be where it's at, uh, which basically turned computers from massive, huge room-sized things to, I mean, what, what we're using today. Okay. So um, Tom is saying the new format doesn't allow me to watch this on my big TV. Okay, I um, appreciate the input on that. Um, we'll see if there might be a way around that at this point. Not sure, but I'll definitely look that one up. Okay, so when we are looking at, as I mentioned briefly here, the... Uh, solar occurrence of the Earth, the Earth's energy grid, that sort of thing. We do find that many of these sightings are along either the lines or those what we call the energetic nodes, right? They're, they're technically uh, conductivity discontinuities, which is a mouthful. We call them hotspot nodes, for lack of a better term. And so I have a quote here from myself from the show, where I say, if we're trying to solve a mystery, you want to go to a location that has the most clues. And these are the locations that could have the clues to connect our ancient past to our modern reality and perhaps give us the answers we're seeking. Because along these different nodes, you'll find you know, like the pyramids of Giza. Uh, you'll find the Bermuda Triangle. You'll find Stonehenge you'll find the American Southwest where there seems to always be something going on. We're going to actually focus a lot on the American Southwest uh, with this particular class. It wasn't my original intention, but as I was putting things together for the class, that's just kind of where it ended up going. So we will start with you know, kind of the most famous of them all, which is Roswell. So Roswell, 1947, and you guys 
probably know the controversy pretty well where you know, they had reported the crash of a flying saucer out there. When the debris was collected by Major Jesse Marcel, who is, this is kind of the famous photo here, um, a press officer issued a statement on that July 8th, 1947, describing the crash and recovery of a flying disc. But the next day, there was a separate officer that stated, no, they recovered a weather balloon and not a flying saucer. Now, other witnesses in the area are like, no, this, this garbage that he's showing off here on the ground uh, was not what crashed there. And that is always the, the big controversy. And you even have headlines. Now, this is the, the famous headline everybody is familiar with, um, RAAF, which is the uh, Roswell Airfield Maybe it's, uh, there's two A's, I forget what the other A is. Um, captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. But uh, then you have another headline here, General Ramsey empties Roswell saucer. So you have more than one headline talking about a, a saucer crash, but yet uh, military comes back and says, no, 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 it's just a weather balloon, nothing to see here. Now, that wasn't the only citing that summer. There are a lot of different sightings. Roswell gets um, most of the uh, acclaim. But there's also June 24th, 1947, which was the uh, Kenneth Arnold's sighting there at Mount Rainier. And that's basically where we get the term flying saucer, because that's the way he described it, was that, you know, they looked like saucers in the air. And, you know, we're talking about saucers that you'd put like a teacup or something like on, like that on. We don't really use that term anymore these days uh but they did back then and that's what he related it to and ever since then it was known as flying saucers although we've kind of gone away from calling them flying saucers because that terminology is anybody who's used that term over the decades kind of got labeled a nut so then we went to ufos which really the term ufo came out of project blue book uh j allen Hynek. And those guys and then it was no if you're saying ufos then you're then you're not so now our modern term here is uap unidentified aerial phenomenon uh, which is really kind of over the last 20 years because um, you know people do want to talk about this but there's a stigmatism when you use the term ufo or flying saucer or something like something like that so now we've come up with this other definition. Uh, I, I mentioned in, uh, I think it was the Supernatural Hotspots class. I was like, we should just call it USA, unidentified stuff in the air. Because there's a lot of stuff up there that we don't know what in the world's going on. Um, also, going back here again to Alaska, uh, August 4th, 1947. So this would have been just after Roswell. Uh, Captain Jack Peck and co-pilot Vince Daly witnessed and followed a flying saucer northwest of Bethel, Alaska, around sunset. So there was actually a lot going on that summer. And let's see here. Uh, so, and, and thank you, Roswell Army Airfield. Thank you, Jen. Appreciate that. Because, uh, yeah, it was still at that point, it wasn't the Air Force yet. Um it was the uh, Army Air Corps is what it was. The Air Force came out of the Army Air Corps. So that makes sense, Army Airfield. Thank you. Uh, and it's there's a saucers or flying pie plates. Yeah, or Frisbee, right? <laughs> or like the uh, Back to the Future uh, 3 where it picks up the, uh, the pie plate that says Frisbee on it and it's far out. Yeah. All right. So sticking around the American Southwest, I said we were going to be there for a while uh, this evening. Phoenix Lights, some interesting stuff here with this. So this was 1997, so a little bit more recently. Uh, widely cited by, I mean, there are hundreds of reports of these lights. They're in a V-shape uh, over the states of Arizona and Nevada. Um, so it it was, uh, it, it took a great flight path. Um, they were seen for quite a while. Hundreds of miles and hundreds of people saw them. Uh, law enforcement uh, agencies did report receiving hundreds of calls from witnesses about these strange lights. 
and uh, yeah, a, a perfect V. Now, what's interesting is, okay, you see the V shape here, single lights like that. The, uh, the story similar to this that we talked about on the Ancient Aliens episode was Hudson Valley. And again, you see V-shape, but multiple lights. So you see here each one of these, and there's, what, seven lights, but each light is single, where here you have, it's like six lights, but they're, they're tripled. A couple of them you can't see because it's just, you know, grainy footage. That's from 1984. So could be related because of the v-shape but the the lights on the underside are done a little bit differently interesting story that came out of this that um i can i guess i'll just kind of briefly say you you may hear again here sometime in the coming months it's actually by actor kurt russell so he's actually a um he's actually a pilot and he was there that night for the Phoenix Lights. And he revealed a few years ago that he was actually the pilot who first called in the Phoenix Lights while he was landing there that night. He and his son were on approach about a half mile out when they noticed six lights in a V-shape that they couldn't identify. Russell says that he was stunned for a moment, but finally snapped out of it when his son Oliver asked what the lights were. Like, oh, okay, yeah. He admitted he had no idea and called it into air traffic control. After they landed, the incident completely escaped Russell's mind. A couple years later, his wife, Goldie Hawn, was watching a television show about UFOs featuring the Phoenix Lights. And the report seemed vaguely familiar to him, but he couldn't quite place it, at least at first. As the coverage continued, the television show mentioned a civilian pilot had called in the first sighting of the lights and it suddenly dawned on russell that it had been him he likened the whole experience to what richard dreyfus's character experiences in close encounters of the third kind and that's what a lot of um different re ufo researchers have kind of keyed in on with this report from kurt russell is that um that idea of lost time that um you know, Tom, you had mentioned something about the abductions earlier, and people have been abducted, sometimes don't realize it. All they know is, hey, it was, you know, two o'clock, now it's three o'clock, what in the world happened? And all they remember is seeing something like a bright light, um, you know, or, you know, they're, you know, they witness a sighting, but for whatever reason, it's almost like their mind shuts off and they are suddenly what's a good term to use here that they're suddenly just you know nonplussed about the whole thing there there's a um in the in the show westworld there's something built into the hosts in which if there's something around that they're not supposed to really see or notice or whatever they're just like, doesn't look like anything to me, you know, um, which is kind of interesting. So they'll sometimes test the host and show them modern pictures. They're supposed to be in an old West town. They'll show them some modern pictures and, um, you know, they'll ask them to, you know, does this, you know, what does this look like to you? Doesn't look like anything to me. So it's, it's almost like there's something that's been turned off uh, when some of these sightings happen which is kind of interesting. That seems to be uh, what happened to, to Russell. So, all right, moving through the West to see we have comments or questions down here. Jedi mind trick, yeah, kind of like that. Um, and Sarah, yeah, do you think he experienced a psychological reprogramming of the event? Uh, that is what some people speculate, that um, now he put it so far out of mind and it took you know, watching this particular episode for so long before it finally hit him uh, that he was there at that time. And the Phoenix lights were, were a big deal when it happened. You know, people that were there on the ground uh, noticing up in the air this stuff, you know, we're, we're calling it in left and right. But he was 
basically right there by it. And so, so to him, you know, this should be something that was like more significant when he landed, you know, would have heard people talking about it after he landed because it was such a big deal. And so many people had seen it, nothing till 20 years later. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Um, yeah, and Tom, that's an interesting uh, point there. Same thing happened at Mineral Springs Hotel when we saw the little girl. Our minds didn't allow us to take a picture of her. Yeah, we just, it was one of those where you just didn't even think about it at the time. You know, here we are, you know, five of us seasoned paranormal investigators, and none of us thought to even, you know, I mean, I had a video camera around somewhere. Um wasn't with me in the hall. I probably left it in Pearl's room, but we all had phones on us and nobody thought to take out a phone and take a photo, run a little video, anything like that. None of us thought to do that. So it's kind of interesting what happens in those moments that you just common sense sorts tends to just evaporate. So all right, let us move on to Chaco Canyon. Uh, I really, really like Chaco Canyon. Uh, I spent a, oh, an entire afternoon out there once and barely even scratched the surface. Um, this is Pueblo Benito, which is the, the most famous uh, location that's out there, but they have a lot of these there, a lot of these Pueblos. And uh, absolutely fascinating. So this is not my photo, this aerial shot. Um, you have to get special permission to do any drone footage or anything like that there. Um, and I found that out uh, while I was there. But uh, but yeah, from the ground, it's, you know, it's these ancient ruins. And very, very mysterious. We don't know a lot about the people that had resided there. Uh, the Hopi believe that they are descended. We call them ancient Pueblans now. So just for reference, the term uh, Anasazi, we're not supposed to use anymore. Apparently, that was an ancient Navajo derogatory term that uh, they used to call these people that were there. And so when you know settlers came into the, the area, the, the English, the, uh, the Americans, the you know, us, when we came in and we started asking them, you know, who were these people who built these? And the Navajo didn't like them, so they told us they were the Anasazi. And so that was the term that we started using. Navajos getting a big laugh out of it while, um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, the Hopi believe that they are descended from them. We call them ancient Pueblans because we are not specifically sure. Uh, it's a long ago abandoned site. And you have these, uh, these ceremonial areas, these circular ceremonial areas that we call kivas. And some of you may remember the, the one that I call the hot tub. Now, it's very possible that these, something like this, like this small one, could have been used for some sort of uh, ritual bath or something like that. Uh, that's a practice that's seen in many, many different cultures uh, for... Uh, you know, some sort of initiation or uh, transformation or something like that, where they will use these different ritual baths. Uh, but just the way the the, pil the small pillars are done in there, they look like seats. And then uh, you have that kind of hole there at the bottom that's like, oh, that could be the drain. So I've always called it the hot tub. <laughs> but we don't know. But what's interesting um, you know, there are UFO sightings out in this area. Uh, this is a very, very highly energetic area. This was uh, used primarily for ritual. This is not where they resided long term. Uh, this was a short term site for these people. They would come and go, uh, perform their rituals, and then they would leave again. But they left us Things like the petroglyphs on the wall. You guys have heard me talk about the swirl patterns, the spirals that are on these walls. And they relate these to the star people is, is what they call them. And so, you know, the question becomes, of course, you know, my uh, 
colleagues there in ancient aliens, of course, relate this to, uh, you know, the extraterrestrials interacting with the people. Whether they were or not, we don't know for sure. It's a possibility. But there apparently was some sort of um, celestial activity going on there that they recorded there on these uh, on the walls there. And, and this is really like just right behind. If you look here um, at Pueblo Benito in this photo here, and those that are listening to the uh, podcast version later, if you want to you know, actually see the uh, photos, I'm going to play a video here shortly. Uh, please join us, connect to universeportal.com every Wednesday night. Uh, to the right here uh, on the wall are these petroglyphs. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe 100, 200 feet down that wall. So, all right, I'm going to go ahead and play a short video clip here for you. On the stone behind me are petroglyphs, and this is actually called Petroglyph Trail, because all along the canyon walls here are a number of different petroglyphs, which is basically the ancient artwork from the Anasazi culture that had been here. It's left up to us to try to decipher what these things mean. You can see kind of the swirl shape behind us, and that is in a number of these different petroglyphs. So some things that they may be spirit portals. Some think that they may represent the actual galaxies above. A lot of different things, spirit energy. But we actually see this swirl pattern in a lot of different ancient cultures, not just here, but all over the world, which makes you question again the tie-in of ancient cultures all across the globe, even though they are separated by thousands and thousands of miles across continents, but yet they still have some sort of apparent connection. All right, there we go. And see, I used the term there before I was told otherwise. So I do apologize for that, but that's why I explained that <laughs> to start. Uh, next time we'll go back to Chaco Canyon, I will use the uh, correct term, ancient Pueblos. But yeah, um, you know, you guys have, seen me talk about the uh, spiral and the swirl patterns all over the world. There were some uh, photos there from Newgrange in Ireland, which we didn't get to last time around. We're going to make sure we get to that next time around. Uh, there was Sardinia. You know, all over the world, you see that pattern. And there it was, Chaco Canyon, American Southwest. They've also seen that near uh, Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, I'm not going to go a ton into uh, Skinwalker here because we did uh, touch on that during the Supernatural Hotspots. We, we went into that at length. Uh, but this is another location there uh, in the American Southwest that has a lot of activity. And this one is very, very active. Uh, you know, the, the UAPs that are seen around the Mesa are extenuous. There are several that are seen on a very, very regular basis. Uh, and this, in the Mesa here, uh, has a lot of strange uh, electromagnetic activity associated with it. Some people believe that there is actually a UFO that is buried within the Mesa. I mean, we don't know. You'd have to go digging into there. And they did drill into that. We, we featured that on the, the last time that we uh, covered Skinwalker and the strange types of metals that they retreat from there that are very, very rare. Uh, then there's the, again, it's a triangle area uh, there on Skinwalker Ranch. Now it's a triangle area because of the roads that they built. <laughs> so that's why it looks like a triangle, but uh, it's another location there where they get a lot of strange activity. Uh, a lot of the UAPs that they see there seem to be uh, directly above it, and they have actually, uh, you know, it's been measurable the uh, electromagnetic activity that's rising out of there. It's also a stone circle that is right there. So, you know, that's another thing that we tend to see in common with some of these locations is they will have, you know, these ancient pieces of architecture there. Uh, you know, ceremonial sites. We saw that just a moment ago with Chaco Canyon. You see that here uh, with a stone circle. And uh, we'll touch on that very briefly here uh, toward the end later. 
because we'll we will mention Stonehenge, of course. But um, but yeah, it's uh, it's these type of things that uh, that we call our our hotspot areas. You know, we have that. Uh, we talk about the energy in the area at a place like Skinwalker. You know, it's really like the whole American Southwest. There's something about that area, uh, and it very well could just be the metals and minerals in the ground. Because what happens is, and you guys have heard me talk about this before, you know, the core of our earth is molten iron and it's spinning, uh, it's moving, it's, you know, there's an ebb and a flow to all of that. Um, you know, the, the earth also rocks back and forth a bit. You know, there's a wobble uh, that, you know, where that's where we get our precession from. And as that spins and creates a magnetic field, which you know, protects our, our planet from the solar winds. You know, it passes through different metals and minerals in the ground. And as mag, as magnetic fields pass into those different metals, they create additional fields or other fields, uh, whether it's you know, quartz, um, you know, could be other metals, could be water, that sort of thing. And you'll have some areas that are stronger than others in that sort of thing. Comments here. Um, yeah, I definitely need to take a trip out there. And uh, yeah, I remember, Tom, you, I think you sent me that uh, that audio clip from Dustin. Yep. All right. So other areas in the American Southwest, uh, you have the Sedona area, uh, which is absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. And there's Cathedral Rock, which uh, I dropped my old video camera off of and it broke. I tried to fix it. And when I opened it up, you know, there's pieces falling out. So I was like, yeah, I think it's done. Um, so now I have this video camera. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely beautiful area. And this is a location where, uh, I mean, people, you know, that are involved with uh, supernatural, paranormal fields, spirituality fields, um, they flock there. It, it's like a Mecca uh, for you know, this type of you know, research and um, you know, meditation, you know, that sort of thing. People go there for that uh, because of the energy that is out there. Uh, people talk about there being uh, portals. You, know, you just walk along a path and you know, people have experienced different portal activity out there. Uh, I, I did not while I was <laughs> walking around out there um, trying to find it. I had, you know, my uh, tri-field meter going and see if I could find um, a, a more energetic spot, see if I could get sucked into a portal and go back in time or forward in time or, um, you know, maybe transported somewhere. Could people talk about that? It, it happens, um, you know, where people will be, you know, walking along a path and all of a sudden they're somewhere else or somebody that was next to them suddenly suddenly disappears it's it's bizarre when that happens um but uh but there in sedona people talk more of it's a, a more of a positive energy that you know people use that uh that energy to and jen you would probably know more about this sort of thing with your with your meditation um that they will use that energy to to align themselves um you have you know people that go out there with their crystal collection uh, to, to get their chakras all aligned and correct and, and everything. Uh, that's huge out there. Uh, you also have a lot of sky watching out there. People will go to Sedona to watch the skies, and people report seeing a lot of UFOs and UAPs out there in the Sedona area. Then there's, uh, not too far from Sedona, it's just right down the road, you have um, Montezuma's Castle and Montezuma's Well. Um, there are some really, really interesting uh, legends that come out of these areas from the uh, ancient Native American tribes as to what happened here. And there's still an energy about these places. And I have a, it's a little bit of a longer clip here to play. Uh, I, I played it a long time ago when we did the American Southwest stuff. Um, so that would have been October 2021. So it's been a little while since you guys have seen this. 
Okay, I am here at Montezuma's Well, kind of panning around a little bit so you can get a, a view of that. It is a pretty cool little area. So there are origin stories here for the Native Americans and kind of depends on who you listen to. So if you do some searches on the internet, you're going to find stories about a girl that was sealed up in a hollow log. If you talk to somebody like uh, Clifford Mahuti, who is a Zuni elder who is actually ousted from his his order and from the, the Zuni culture because he was, um, I guess, talking about stuff he shouldn't have been talking about. Uh, he has a little bit of a different story to to tell about that. And uh, you know, my co-hostess Victoria would love it because it has to deal with um, underground stuff and ant people and all of that. And um, so basically the idea is um, during the destruction of Lemuria, the ant people helped uh, the ancient Lemurians hide uh, underground. Um, it also has some interesting information about... Um, you know, basically Japanese that came over, Chinese, there's supposed to be some Chinese petroglyphs out amongst some of the uh, the other stuff, uh, the other regular petroglyphs. So now I will say that this is kind of secondhand in some ways. Um, I, I know Clifford and uh, we met last June at the UFO Mega Conference. We actually talked about uh, what we called the raw people and, you know, Basically, I was asking about uh, shadow people. And so he told me in their culture, they would call them the raw people, the interdimensional beings. So that's what Clifford and I mostly talked about was the raw people and shadow people, interdimensional type beings. Um, we didn't talk about this together. So this information actually comes secondhand through James Keenan, who does all the Utah Basin stuff, Skinwalker Ranch, and all of that. Uh, he and I were chatting at the uh, Las Cruces Paracon about basically where I was gonna where I was gonna be and he said check this place out this is what Clifford says about it and I tried digging up some uh, old podcasts with Clifford and listening to them see if he talked about it a little he did a little bit um not necessarily Montezuma as well but like with Lemuria and the ant people and all that so basically the idea is that um the the ancient peoples were saved by the ant people brought underground Victoria's going to say Hollow Earth. Um, I'll just say large underground caverns where they could live for a while. And then when the time was right, they came back up uh, out. And so this is supposed to be uh, the access point where they came out and then they repopulated the Earth after the great cataclysm, after the great disaster. Whether that was the, the flood, they do talk about the, the flood story and all that stuff. Um, but I'm going to have to research to put all the pieces together uh, for this particular story with, with the well and the origins and all that and where the flood, flood fits in or if it was a different cataclysm. But in any case, um, still very interesting uh, that this would have been potentially an access point. They've had just doing a little bit of research on the well itself. Um, it, it's hard for uh, like fish to live in here. Fish can't live in here. It's too heavily carbonated, so they have some other uh, smaller, like leeches live around here, some small weird shrimp type things. I guess there's like five species of animals that live in here, uh, but most can't. I saw some, you know, ducks swimming around, but they can swim, that's fine. They're not living in the water. Um, they're not really sure how far down this goes, <laughs> which kind of leads into the legend and the tale and everything, because um, when they have, like they've, like, They've had divers in here. They can only get so far. They've tried to put robots down into there. They get pushed back out. Um, so they're having a very, very hard time actually researching the depths of this. They do not know how far down it goes and where all it goes. Uh, so it leads you to question, are those like the underground caverns that the ancient Lemurians had lived in long, long ago that's now filled in with water and is inaccessible? Is, is that where... You know they came out of uh you know and and being helped by the the ant people down there and when we talk ant people we're talking <clears throat> like you know listening to clifford so like they had translucent ones that were about two 
uh, two and a half feet tall, and then I guess some red ones that were like a couple feet taller than that. So they weren't any more than like four feet tall, but they stood erect. Uh, and, and he made comments about, you know, put, you know, an ant, a praying mantis, and then an ET next to each other, and you can like see an, an evolutionary type process from one to the other. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So were they possibly ETs that had, uh, that had helped the ancient cultures, protected them here until the earth was, was habitable again? Yeah, so Montezuma as well, I and, and Clifford. So I had tried to coordinate with Clifford uh, to be able to talk to him a little bit more about all of that. And unfortunately, he passed away shortly thereafter. But he was a Zuni elder who um, had no problem coming forth with a lot of the different stories from their culture. Uh, not a lot of the different Native American cultures have restrictions about what their elders can talk about and divulge. Um, but Clifford believed that, you know, a lot of their history, which, you know, they had many oral traditions, a lot of their history was passed down by story, through, you know, orally. And he believed that uh, many of those stories were being lost, um, that there was information there that the people needed to know that was being restricted and over time, uh, you know, would be forgotten for, for all time. So he was doing what he could uh, to, to bring those stories forward. And so at, at some point along the way, um, you know, they, they ousted him uh, from, his, from his eldership, unfortunately. And then, um, yeah, it was a, I think it was a little over a year ago now uh, that he passed away. So it's, um, which is sad, but, uh, but great guy. I love sitting down and, and, and talking with him. Um, just so many interesting stories, so insightful, um, you know, fantastic guy. And so in any case, um, yeah, so I saw that there was a question there from Sarah. Uh, if the Lemurians were hidden there, did they bring any of the technology? Well, it was during the cataclysm. So uh, you know, when they, I'll say this when the people emerged from there, they basically you know, became the culture that inhabited that area. And you're seeing, you know, the what mud brick structures there of, uh, you know, Montezuma's castle, which really isn't a castle. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's in the, uh, it's in the cliff there. And you can kind of see it's uh, the, the cliff dwellings there in the uh, rock above the well, uh, Montezuma's castle is basically a larger version of that. Um, so, you know, during the, the cataclysm that they fled from, apparently, if they had some advanced technology, it would have been lost during either during that cataclysm or we don't really know how long they are supposed to have stayed down underground. Could have been lost during that. We don't know. Um, or at least... I don't, that might be something to research a little bit deeper into. And I saw uh, Jen here mentioned uh, when she was at Sedona, she said, yes, I meditated in an energy vortex in Sedona. It was mostly peaceful except for a noisy hiker. So very cool. And yeah, you mentioned that before, Bonazuma's castle with the bubonic plague squirrels. Yeah, yeah, there was a um, you know, bubonic plague does still exist and the squirrels out west there are known to have it. So don't don't play with the squirrels out there. <laughs> All right. So we've done a lot here with uh, with the American Southwest. Um, a couple other things here I want to throw out real quick. Um, if you go a little bit further west from there, you end up in um, yeah, a little bit. Um, San Diego, San Diego area offshore has had some recent sightings here. Uh, this is an image from Jeremy Corbell. Uh, he has actually a video clip from this from the U.S. Navy uh, off the USS Omaha. This was featured in the uh, in the Ancient Aliens episode. But basically, it was July 15, 2019. Uh, U.S. Navy's Combat Information Center of the USS Omaha picked up what was dubbed a swarm of UFOs on radar. This is just one screen cap from that. 
Uh, speeds reach as much as 160 miles per hour. Uh, some of the UA, some of these UAPs appeared as lights in the sky, while others were reported to have slipped in and out of the sea. So there, there is an idea there that has been pretty prevalent for a long time that there is a um, there is an underwater base there. It would be a USO base, unidentified submerged object. That's off the off the coast there. Uh, so obviously. Uh, with San Diego having a massive military presence, could certainly be of interest to UFOs studying U.S. Uh, US forces. And uh, there have been hundreds of UFO sightings in and around the San Diego area for decades. So that's to the west. Now, if you go further east from the American Southwest, uh, at least that, that corner area, uh, you run into Marfa, Texas, and they... and there's the Marfa lights. They have actually built a viewing station for people to watch the lights. The state, the state has built a viewing station for people to watch the Marfa lights. And this is, you know, it's interesting. This is a type of phenomenon that occurs in a lot of different areas. Um, like uh, Miami, Oklahoma, they, they have the Miami lights. Um, there's the Hebron lights out in um, Maryland. There are locations that have these strange lights like this. Now, my colleagues, Andrew Collins, uh, would probably liken this to plasma phenomenon. Um, he was also featured on this past episode of Ancient Aliens. Uh, his his book with Gregory Little, Origins of the Gods, gets into that. Uh, a lot of the, uh, what they covered with the Kesem Cave, which they spent like all of five minutes on it in the episode, a ton of information on the on the Kesem Cave in here. I highly recommend the book because it, it, it gives you another perspective of, you know, what some of this phenomenon could be. Um, of course, it would still be a UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, because, you know, it's some sort of light that we don't quite understand. We can't identify it just yet, but it could be some sort of... Uh, plasma event and then you start asking the question okay so if it is you know are there are there different organisms and beings and things like this that live within the plasma it's taking a step far there we're not going to get into all that this evening but we will get into uh just a few minutes here because we're starting to run out of time uh the chasm cave this is another area where you know, another area of the world in which a lot of these different things are seen uh, this is northwest of Jerusalem near Tel Aviv. It's found in 2000 during road construction. Uh, but the site itself is, it was occupied from 400,000 years ago to about 200,000 years ago. So it had 200,000 years of occupation. But this is like one of the oldest active sites in the world. And it blew people away, blew researchers away when they were digging this up because stone tools are found. Um, the there There's evidence that they preserved their food. So these are things that humans were not supposed to have 400, 200,000 years ago. The other big thing uh, that they had evidence of was religious ceremonies and shamanism. Now, previously... We had only seen that about as far back as 40,000 years ago, you know, 30 to 40,000 years ago, you see uh, like in, in cave art in Europe, uh, the, the idea that there were some uh, religious ceremonies that were performed there, but hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, it's, you know, it's really just unheard of. So what Collins and Little ask basically is, why were they performing religious rituals? Why why was shamanism a practice back then? What brought them to doing all of this? And right around that area, just to the east, uh, I guess it would be a little to the northeast of there, uh, is Mount Gerizim. Now, I'm not going to get into everything because this is an extremely religious site. I'm not going to get into all of that. Um, but basically... Uh, it's a sacred site to the Samaritans. This is where Jacob had his dream of the ladder, Jacob's ladder. Um, 
Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal stand opposite each other. And this was really kind of like the heart of Israel at the time that the Israelites entered into the area with, with Joshua. Um, ancient city of Shechem lies in the valley right between the two. And there is an altar there, which is believed to be the altar of Joshua. When they brought the Ark of the Covenant forward and he read the words, the law, um, all of that stuff. So all of that aside, um, on Mount Gerizim, over the millennia, lights have been seen on the mountain, which people in the area have attributed to angels. So, you know, you have all of this uh, fantastic religious tradition there between Jacob and Joshua, all, all the things that have been uh, done and performed there, but yet, the question, I guess, that is being uh, asked here is, were they drawn here because of the lights that were seen there, which people today would call UAPs? You know, the religious tradition is that, you know, there's some sort of angels. And Collins and Little are proposing that perhaps it's some sort of plasma event. But they take that back to, you know, the inhabitants of the Chasm Cave, which they would have been able to see Mount Gerizim from where they're at in the cave. Um, do they see this on such a regular basis that they started performing their rituals in honor of the lights that they were seeing on top of the mountain? So again, we're talking hotspot areas. Um, I'm going to go back south here a little bit to uh, Jerusalem real quick. And this is controversial. And I get that. Um, of course, you're talking about a location uh, in which, you know, you know, <laughs> many religions have, you know, their sacred sites here between Judaism, Christian, Christianity, and, you know, right now you have the Dome of the Rock uh, with the Muslims there. So you, you know, have those three primary religions that, uh, you know, all call this a sacred site. And... This photo here is actually a video clip. It is highly controversial, um, but basically there was this UAP or anomalous ball of light that was seen uh, hovering over the Dome of the Rock and then shot up into the air. And, you know, skeptics have tried to call this a hoax, but there's not one definitive thing in which they've been able to state this is why it's a hoax. So... You know, the UAP community is like, well, it's still a possibility that it is real. So there is a conflict there as to whether or not the footage is real or was faked. It hasn't been proven one way or the other. But again, we have a very highly energetic sacred site. And it has been that way for thousands and thousands of years. And apparently with the Chasm Cave, hundreds of thousands of years, which again is almost you know, impossible to fathom, but there it is. Um, yeah, so I was going to swing back around and talk about uh, Stonehenge here real quick. We we did hit on that with the, uh, you know, Stonehenge hippies before. But this is, you know, when we talk about our stone circles, and we talked about that earlier uh, you know, briefly with, with Skinwalker Ranch. They, you know, they have a stone circle there. Um you, know, you have a lot of these stone circles around the world. Uh, ancient Egypt, you have Napa Playa with the stone circles. Of course, you have the pyramids uh, there where all kinds of different things have been seen and witnessed and observed. But these different power sites around the world like this seem to attract this type of activity and behavior. And even if it's not ETs, even if it's not extraterrestrials, you know, there's still the possibility that it could be ultra terrestrials or some sort of interdimensional being, something like that. It could be energy that is opening into, uh, you know, other places in the universe or other dimensions within our own planet. Uh, you know, you you see these ideas of uh, stargates and portals and things like this. Um, you know, we don't quite understand all of that yet. You know, they're trying to actually create them in the lab. They they have stated now, um, it was about a month ago, a month and a half ago now, where they stated we could we created a small wormhole in the lab. So, you know, it's it's being done. 
uh, you know, even, you know, scientifically, not just, hey, we saw something, you know, there's energy in the ground, we have these different ideas, they're actually producing things like this in the lab now. And that is seemingly attracting a lot of this different behavior. And yeah, Tom, exactly. There will be always be two sides to everything. Uh, well, three sides to every story, right? Yeah. Yours, mine, and the truth. So it, to me, it's always somewhere there in the middle. Um, and I think the disciplines need to come together and realize that, that it is somewhere in the middle, that you, know, you could use one to, to almost prove the other, not wholly, but at least in part. And if each side would be open-minded to each other, I think they'll find that the answer is somewhere in the middle there. So, all right, everybody, that is going to do it for our first Connecting the Universe class of 2023. Really appreciate you guys joining us tonight on the new platform. Um, we'll see how this goes. I would prefer to keep this out here rather than do the whole Facebook thing. So, um, you know, that would kind of keep everything all inclusive in one little place there on ConnectedUniversePortal.com. So, again, Happy New Year. And until next time, if time really exists. <laughs>